Merciful Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that you've given us this morning. We can come together and study, and we're thankful that you have provided us with evidence of your existence and your power and your compassion. And we're thankful, Father, that that we have been exposed to that evidence and thankful that, uh, that you are there to hear our prayers and that you provide uh, our needs for us. We're thankful, Father, that through Jesus Christ we can approach you in prayer and um, have the confidence that you will hear. And Father, we pray for your blessing to be with us today as we study. And in just a few minutes when uh, the church assembles, here to offer our worship to you, we pray that it would uh, bring you honor and glory. We pray that everything that we do would bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, like I said, we've been looking at, uh, in the class, uh, evidence for the existence of God. Uh, and we've, we're looking at it in different um, from different angles, different lines of evidence and argumentation. And today we're going to look at what is uh, often referred to as the teleological argument. That's kind of the big word for it. It's the design argument. Uh, it's probably uh, how it's better uh, described. And basically here's how the argument goes. If, it's, if the universe demonstrates purposeful design, then the universe must have had a designer. All right, that's your major premise. Right? Your minor premise is that the universe does demonstrate purposeful design. Therefore, the universe must have had a designer. Um, it's, a, um, it's, really a, it's, it's a classic argument, uh, classic meaning it's, it's ancient, but it's, it's rooted in uh, sound reasoning. You know, we understand that this building not only did not, but could not have come into existence just because a tornado blew through a brickyard. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't work that way. You look at this building and there is evidence in just looking at it that there had to be a mind or a number of minds behind it to create its design, right? It shows evidence of design. And when there's evidence of design, that demands that there was someone who designed it. Um, you, know, uh, uh, the, you know, if you're holding a, a paper print Bible in your hand, you know that, that that object did not come into existence because of an explosion in a print shop where there was paper and there was ink and somebody, you know, somebody lit off a, a stick of dynamite and it exploded and all of a sudden here's, here's what the result was. Right? It doesn't make any logical sense to conclude that. But what we're being asked to believe by many and by most in the scientific community is that this universe 
that shows evidence of intricate design and detail, and we're going to look at some of that evidence this morning. We're being asked to believe that this universe that shows all of that evidence of design just happened because of some alleged Big Bang sometime in the past where this massive explosion happened, and out of that massive explosion and chaos comes intricate design and detail. Okay, If I could believe that, then I could also believe that this Bible came as a result of a similar process, of an explosion in a print shop. All right? So that's what we're going to look at today, the design argument. Now, going hand in hand with the design argument is something that, this again is in the scientific community that they refer to as the anthropic principle. The term comes from the Greek word anthropos, which is the, the Greek word for man. All right, and it's the anthropic principle which asserts that the universe generally and the earth specifically seem to have been built specifically for the use of man, of humans. In other words, scientists look at the universe and the earth particularly and they sit back and they look at that and they say, wow, if I didn't know better, it certainly appears that this earth was fashioned specifically for the use of human beings. In other words, we interact so well and so seamlessly with this environment, it's almost as if they say that this environment was, pardon the word, created for human use. All right? That's the anthropic principle. And... Remember, this is a principle, terminology, that's used in the scientific community, the atheistic scientific community. All right, so according to this principle, the universe shows evidence of having been designed in a way that is consistent with man's need for survival. So the more scientists study the intricacies of the universe, the more his conscience demands that he concede that, yeah, there's evidence that this planet looks like it was designed. All right? Now this principle and all these allusions to design and purpose and all of that, it sounds more like something that you'd hear from a pulpit than it would something that we're accustomed to hearing come from the laboratory. And the scientists themselves recognize it. I want you to notice some of these quotes. This is from Robert Jastrow, atheist, okay? He said this, it, and the it that he's referring to is the anthropic principle, this idea that the, the, the universe seems to have been uh, designed with humans in mind. He said, it is the most theistic result ever to come out of science in my view. So he's basically saying, out of everything that science has come up with, discovered, he said this principle is the most theistic, right? Theistic has to do with that comes to the Greek word for God. It's the most God-infused principle that's ever come out of the scientific community, he says. And he's an atheist. You also have this quote. This is from Freeman Dyson, another atheistic scientist. 
He said the universe is an unexpectedly hospitable place for living creatures to make their home in. Being a scientist trained in the habits of thought and language of the 20th century rather than the 18th, I do not claim that the architecture of the universe proves the existence of God. Right? Now, this is an atheistic scientist. Now, I want you to go back before we finish this quote and notice this very subtle statement. Bottom. Being a scientist and trained in the habits and thought and language of the 20th century rather than the 18th. That's a slap in the face to scientists in the 18th century. The overwhelming majority of which were theists, believed in God. Isaac Newton, very much a believer in God. Johann Kepler, a lot of those um, scientists from centuries ago were theists. And they would make statements such as this, I believe in God not in spite of my scientific training, but because of it. And they would make statements like, you know what, we scientists are only discovering God's laws after him. In other words, God put them there, and we're just discovering what he put there. Well, Dyson is saying, well, you know, I'm trained in the thought of 20th century scientists, not 18th century. And so he says, since I am in that group... I don't claim that the architecture of the universe proves the existence of God. 18th century scientists did. But he, he says, here's what I do claim. I claim only that the architecture of the universe is consistent with the hypothesis that mind plays an essential role in its functioning. All right. <laughs> Whose mind plays an essential role in the functioning of the universe. You see, he can't bring himself to say there's no evidence of design in the universe. None. He knows he can't get by with that. So he has to say, yes, there's, there's evidence of design. There's evidence of purpose. But I don't claim that that proves the existence of a, of a higher being. It just is consistent with the idea that there is mind in the functioning of the universe. The more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. So he's going out of his way to say, it just looks like all of the evidence points to the fact that this world exists in view of the humans that would inhabit it. Everything is perfect for us. And isn't that something that it just happened to turn out that way? That's kind of where he ends it. All right, here's another one. Whether one accepts or rejects the design hypothesis, there is no avoiding the conclusion that the world looks as if it has been tailored for life. It appears to have been designed. All reality appears to be a vast, coherent, teleological, designed whole with life and mankind as its purpose and its goal. Now again, folks, these, these are atheistic scientists that are making these statements. They'll come so far as to say, I mean, just look at the word. It looks like it's been designed. It looks like there's purpose here. 
We're not going to say there's a God. One more. This one's great. And by great, I mean amazing. Amazingly. <laughs> Our form of life depends in delicate and subtle ways on several apparent coincidences in the fundamental laws of nature which make the universe tick. Without those coincidences, we would not be here to puzzle over the problem of their existence. What does this mean? One possibility is that the universe we know is a highly improbable accident, just one of those things. So that's where they end up. They look at, they, they examine all of the evidence, and they say, wow, that, that just, it just look, every, everything points to design. But in the end, it's just one of those things. It just, it just happened. Now, I could take you through the same line of argumentation for this building. We could say, let's just look at this building. Look at how all those lights are in, in, in perfect line. And, and look at how these, these beams go up across that support the roof so that the roof doesn't cave in. Look at the symmetry uh, of, of the windows. And look at, uh, you know, look at these where, where the air comes through that, that, that cools the place. And that's, that's kind of neat when it's the summertime and you need cool air. And then in the wintertime when it's cold and you need heat to warm it up, hot air comes out of those same places. And look at how these... I mean, you could just take each and you could conclude, wow, it just, the evidence just screams that somebody thought about this. Somebody designed this building and then based upon that design and a purposeful decision to create this thing, they worked on it and, and here it is. But even though it looks that way, I am here to tell you that's not what happened. Even though all of the evidence points to that as a conclusion, I'm telling you it didn't happen that way. This building just simply came into existence through blind happenstance. It just, it just happened. It just grew up out of nothing. Now, if you heard me present that, and you knew that I wasn't being facetious, if I seriously and honestly tried to convince you that that was the process, you know what would happen. Y'all would, you know, try to sit me down on the front and keep me calm while Alan went out to the telephone and called the guys to come with the butterfly nets and take me away. Because I honestly tried to convince you that this building just happened by accident. But we're being asked to conclude that the entire universe, of which we are just a small part, just happened by some kind of similar process. Just one of those things. Well, the truth is, our universe is the product of a purposeful and powerful being that we call God, who is responsible for its creation. 
Isaiah said, Isaiah 45 verse 18, that God formed the earth and made it to be inhabited. There's the anthropic principle in Scripture. Isaiah said, God created the earth for the purpose of having it be inhabited by people. So if God were going to do that, then you'd want an earth that met our needs. And ours does that. All right, so we've kind of laid out the principle. We've looked at what, here's what the atheists say. The atheists say, yeah, it shows evidence of design. It looks like it had purpose behind it, but we all know it didn't. Well, what observable testimony exists that tells us, that leads us to the conclusion that there was mind and purpose behind the existence of the universe and our world in particular? Let's look at some of that. First of all, let's talk about the earth. The earth is located some 93 million miles from the sun. That 93 million mile distance happens to be just right for human life to exist. The miles of empty space between the earth and the sun allow for a lot of the sun's energy to be diminished over that, uh, over that space. Scientists tell us that if the earth was just a mere 10% closer to the sun, our atmosphere, which is laden with oxygen, would catch fire and burn up the planet rather quickly. So the distance that we have from the earth is just right. They also tell us, scientists do, that if the earth were 10% farther away from the sun than it is right now, only a very minute amount of heat would be absorbed in our atmosphere and we would literally freeze to death. So 10% closer to the sun, we burn up. 10% farther away from the sun, we freeze to death. 93 million miles happens to be just right. By accident? Also indispensable to our survival is a layer of ozone, which is a form of, of oxygen. It's a layer of ozone that encircles the earth some 12 to 18 miles into the atmosphere. This ozone acts as a filter that protects humans from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays. But that, I guess that just happened by accident too. The earth's relationship to the sun is just right, just what it's supposed to be. Consider this. Our planet, the earth, rotates on its axis at 1,000 miles per hour at the equator. Okay, right? The earth spins on its axis. Okay, and that spinning of the earth is what makes our period of light and darkness, right? When, we, when the earth spins toward the sun, right, we've got light. Nighttime, it's because the earth has spun away from the sun. So the earth is spinning on its axis. That speed is roughly a thousand miles per hour, if you were to measure it, at the equator. Now, that, that thousand mile per hour speed is what makes, again, our periods of light and darkness the length that they are. At the same time, the earth, while it's spinning on its axis, is also orbiting the sun, right? Going through space. Well, it travels around the sun at a speed 
of 70,000 miles per hour. And it's that speed, that orbital speed going around the sun, is what makes our seasons the length that they are. Right? Spring, summer, fall, winter. Houston's seasons, I understand, are a little different. You've got muggy, hot, I can't breathe, and kill me now, right? Aren't those the four seasons? Well, that 70,000 mile per hour speed is what gives us our seasons. Now, let's say we don't like that. I don't like 70,000 mile per hour. Let's, let's double that speed. Well, if you did that, our seasons would be half their present length. Does that make sense? You speed the earth up, it goes around the sun more quickly than it does. You double that speed, our seasons are then half as long as they are right now. Well, you can't have that. Because if our seasons were half as long as they are, then we wouldn't be able to grow the food necessary to feed the seven plus billion people that inhabit the planet. So that speed happens to be just right. Let's say, well, we don't want to do that. Let's, let's cut the speed in half. Well, if you do that, then our seasons would be twice as long as they are now because the earth is traveling at a slower speed around the sun. And again, you'd have the same problem. Our orbital speed is just right. Now, I want you to think about this too. <clears throat> the earth orbits, right, around the sun. Basically, a circular pattern. It's not, it's not perfectly circular, but it goes around the sun. So it's not a straight line. We're not going through space in a straight line. We're going in an arc. Did you realize that that arc, that the earth departs from a straight line to create the arc one ninth of an inch every 18 miles? Does that make sense? That's what creates the arc. It's not a straight line. It departs from a straight line one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles, and that's what creates the circle. And that happens to be just right. If it were changed, if it were one-eighth of an inch every 18 miles, the earth would end up too close to the sun and we'd be burned up. If it were one-tenth of an inch, we would ultimately find ourselves too far from the sun and we'd freeze to death. One-ninth of an inch every 18 miles to create the orbit around the sun happens to be just right. What about the moon? 240,000 miles, roughly, from the earth is the moon. All right, And the moon controls the movement of our oceans by its gravitational pull. The moon has gravity. It's not as strong as the earth's gravity, but it does have a gravitational pull. And what creates the tides on earth is the pull of the moon's gravity, pulling the water toward it. And so as the moon goes around the earth, its location determines high tide versus low tide. And, and it also, that, that, that movement of the oceans is what has created the ocean currents. Without the tides coming in and out, 
Our shorelines would not benefit from the natural cleansing process of the oceans and the seas, and the ocean currents would not exist. Um, our world has a built-in cleansing process, and the tides and the ocean currents are a part of that. Without the ocean currents moving the water, the oceans would become rancid pools of dead, rotting sea life. But the moon is there to control those tides and currents. By accident. It's also worthy of note that if the moon were just, let's say we don't like that 240,000 mile, let's, just, let's move it in, say, a fifth of its distance. You do that, and the moon's gravity would create tides that are far more severe than the gentle tides that we see now. 35 to 50 foot high tidal waves twice a day would cover much of the earth's surface. So the moon's existence and its distance from the earth are just right. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. This is coming from the scientific literature. As a matter of fact, the, the things that I'm giving you are in all kinds of different scientific um, uh, journals and, and, and books that astronomers and others have come up with. But one in particular, a lot of this material appeared in an article in Science Digest uh, quite a number of years ago. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is the, the article was titled, Earth's Lucky Break. Aren't we just lucky <laughs> that all of this just happened to fall into place as a result of some kind of cosmic explosion? Explosions destroy things. They don't create things. Another important link in, in this chain of evidence has to do with the atmospheric pressure. You know, the, the atmosphere that encircles the earth has weight. It exerts the, the pressure of about 14.7 pounds of pressure per square inch at the surface of the earth. Now, you can have minor fluctuations in that, but... Um, but you couldn't double it. If you doubled that pressure, it would, it would crush us like you crush a, an insect under the sole of your foot. You couldn't cut it in half. You cut that pressure in half. We would explode from the inside. 14.7 pounds of pressure per square inch at the surface of the earth happens to be just right. God created the earth to be inhabited, as Isaiah said. And the supporting evidence of, of scientific observation proves that. Now, there are, there's also, and I want to call our attention to this before our class is over, there are references in Scripture to this principle of design. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, is, is one of those. Paul writes, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is addressing the sins of the Gentiles, mainly. Uh, in other words, the sins of the heathen nations, not the, the non-Jews. He gets to the sins of the Jews in chapter 2 of Romans, but in chapter 1, uh, he, he focuses on the sins of the Gentiles. And one of their major transgressions was idolatry. They, they carved their own gods out of wood and stone and then worshipped them. And so Paul addresses that and says, 
Romans 1 verse 20, for His invisible attributes, talking about God, the God, the only God, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Writing about the Gentiles who rejected the idea of one God, Paul said, no, wait a minute, they don't have any excuse for that. Because ever since the creation of the world, God's attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How? By observing the things that have been made. As we look around us and we see what's out there, trees, plant life, human life, the, the outer space, the planets, the stars, when we observe all of that and we reason correctly about it, Paul is saying that's going to lead you to the conclusion that God is you're going to have to have something else to reveal what God's will is for your life, and God did that too here. But as far as being able to reach the conclusion that God exists, thoughtful human beings should reach that conclusion just by thoughtfully considering and contemplating the things that have been made. The psalmist put it this way, the heavens... Declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The psalmist is saying that as you contemplate the heavens and the sky above, all of that, he says, proclaims the handiwork of God. And he said it pours out that message, that speech. It pours it out day after day and night after night. He says there is not any speech nor language where that voice is not heard. The voice of God speaking, as it were, through the created world. Alright? That voice, he says, goes throughout all the earth and words to the end of the world. There is not a place on this planet where an individual can go that they are not confronted with evidence of God's existence. You just have to observe and reason correctly about what you see. Now again, you want to learn about God's nature as far as you know His other characteristics, uh, His will and all of that, then He would have to communicate that to you in some fashion, and He has in Scripture. We're going to look later in our class in several weeks at the evidence that demands the conclusion that this is the Word of God. But as far as reaching the conclusion that there's a God, we can reach that conclusion by observing the creation, by observing what's been made. 
And so both of those passages are basically explanations of the design argument. God created, and as we contemplate that creation, we should reach the conclusion that there's a divine being. Somewhere, because there's no other way to rationally and logically explain the existence of all of this without considering the fact that there had to be mind. There had to be a mind behind all of this that is. And not just mind, but power. Alright? So, now all that has to do just with small sections of our universe. Let's talk about uh, evidence that is inherent within us. Evidence of design within the human body. Let's talk about human cells for just a moment. The body, the human body, is composed of over 100 trillion cells. A hundred trillion. Scientists have said that if you were to set end to end, you take every cell out of the human body and you lay it down in a line end to end, the cells in one human body would encircle the earth 200 times. They are compacted so much within us that if you were to spread them out, that's how long they would be. Did you realize that in the last 60 seconds, 3 billion of your cells in your body died? But don't let that scare you because in that same 60 seconds, 3 billion more cells were born anew. Each cell, each cell contains a nucleus. And in that nucleus is what scientists call DNA, right? Deoxyribonucleic acid. The DNA in a cell is what makes you who you are. The DNA is configured in a human cell in a spiral staircase kind of configuration. Again, it spirals, it's, it's, it's compacted within the cell. And it contains over 6 billion, in one cell, 6 billion biochemical steps. 6, six billion biochemical uh, connections. Now, if you were to take that DNA that's compacted within each cell, and you take the DNA out of one cell and you unspiral it, it would be about three feet long. Scientists who have now, in recent years, mapped the human genome, right? You've heard about that probably. Well, that's what they did. They, they got into the DNA and they mapped out all of those billions of biochemical steps. All right, so you've got three feet of nucleus, three feet of DNA in the nucleus of every cell in the human body. Now, if you were to take that out, 
take the DNA out of every cell, out of all of your 100 trillion plus cells, you take the three feet of DNA out of each one of those, and you line it up, hook all the ends together, scientists say that it would reach to the sun and back over 400 times. Now what's interesting about the DNA is every cell in your body contains the same DNA, right? But in each cell, only a, a portion of that cell's information is activated, which is what means, which is what determines that one cell is a skin cell, another cell is a blood cell, another cell is a fingernail cell. Another cell is cardiac muscle cells. Okay? The DNA that makes everything about you who you are, from your eye color to your, your, the shape of your ears, everything, all of that information is in every cell. But only a portion of that information is activated, which determines what cell is, is what. But that just all happened by accident. Or you might consider the ear. 100,000 hearing receptors in our ears constantly send impulses to the brain to be decoded and answered. The ear can distinguish over 2,500 different tones. You think about the kind of music that can be made on a beautiful Steinway piano. And you hear an expert sit down and make all of that, all of those different notes and tones with that instrument. It has 88 keys. Right? You get all of that beauty out of 88 keys. The ear can distinguish over 2,500 different tones. The ear can detect sound frequencies that flutter the eardrums as faintly as one billionth of a centimeter, the distance, a distance of one-tenth the diameter of a hydrogen atom. If your eardrum flutters one billionth of a centimeter, the brain picks it up. There's an interesting quote from, uh, from Charles Darwin. Remember him? In his famous book on the origin of species, from which came the whole, the whole um, theory of organic evolution, in his book, in that book, he wrote this, that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree, end quote. Darwin said that in his own book. He said, for me to think about the fact that the, the human ear just simply evolved by natural selection seems to be one of the most absurd things in the world. But, he ultimately concluded, but I guess that's how it happened. Absurd or not. What about the human eye? Composed of over 100 million cells, 107 to be exact, Seven million cone cells, which allow us to see in color. One hundred million rods, which allow us to see in black and white. And those cells are all connected to the brain by over 300,000 nerves, just from the eye to the brain. 
What about that brain? The brain receives simultaneous and continuous signals. Think about this. Your brain at this very moment is receiving simultaneous and continuous signals from 130,000 light receptors in the eyes, 100,000 hearing receptors in the ears, 3,000 taste buds, 30,000 heat spots on the skin, 250,000 cold spots, and 500,000 touch spots. All at the same time, your brain is receiving signals from all of those things in your body at the same time and constantly. The brain then decodes all of that information, processes all of that information, and sends its response by way of electrical impulses which travel at a speed of 393 feet per second or 270 miles per hour. So when you reach out and touch something and you have the sensation of feeling that which you're touching, that process involves that sensory spot on your skin sending an impulse to the brain that decodes that to recognize what it is and then sends a response back. And all of those electrical impulses are firing at the same time at 393 feet per second in speed. And accurately, so that when you touch that, you don't think, wow, I feel that in my foot. No, you feel it in your finger because the brain's handling all of that correctly and accurately. But it just happened. And these points really just barely scratch the surface of the design evidence in the universe at large, in the human body in particular. And we said absolutely nothing of the design in the animal kingdom, in the plant world, in the insect world. To look at all of that evidence and with a straight face claim that there is no God, there's no mind behind this, there's no purpose in all of this, that it all just happened, that it's just one of those things, to claim that is to be a fool. Psalmist said as much, Psalm 14 verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's all about the evidence. And for us to gander at all of that evidence and say, you know, it just happened is really one of the most foolish things we could say. Let us not ever forget that even though there are a lot of men and women who wear, uh, you know, these impressive-looking lab coats, and you know they've got enough degrees to have a fever, and they've got, you know, they've got all the alphabet soup, you know, after their name. 
let's not just automatically conclude that just because they are smart, and they are, let's not automatically conclude that just because they are smart, they are also honest. There's a difference. The evidence points to design. And as we pointed out in, in the early part of the class, we looked at different quotes, and those are not those, those were not aberrant quotes. Those are quotes from highly respected and known scientists in the scientific community. Jastrow, Freeman Dyson, I mean, those, those, are, uh, those are big names among the atheistic community. And they, they themselves say, you know, if you just look at the world and you analyze the evidence, it looks like it's been designed. It looks like there's purpose to it. It looks like there was a mind behind it. But regardless of all of that evidence, they say at the outset, but we're not even going to consider the idea that there's a God because we reject that. We reject that out of hand. And so, even though it may look like it's been designed, we just simply know that there's no God. And so we're not even going to consider that. And so they come up with these ideas that, well, I guess there must have been some kind of big explosion billions of years ago, and we get all this design from it. Please. The evidence points to the existence of a powerful mind behind our universe and our world. So why not let the evidence take us where the evidence takes us? All right. Well, we're out of time. Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we'll continue by looking at morality and conscience. The existence of morality and the existence of conscience in the human being is also evidence that leads us to the conclusion that there is a God. All right, so we'll look at that next time. Thank you much.